0: When we come forward to receive upasampada as bhikkhus, each individual has their own karma and their own personal reasons for becoming interested in Buddhism and for wanting to take up the robes. Some people are born into a Buddhist family and have faith and a belief in the teachings from birth. Some come to Buddhism later on reading books (coughs) and have a more more of an interest in the intellectual or philosophical side of Buddhism. Others practice meditation, join groups or meet with meditation teachers, attend retreats and perhaps find some peace, some clarity that gives them the inspiration to pursue the practice and maybe come into the robes. What's required for practicing the path as given by the Buddha, the Eightfold Noble Path, that leads to the end of suffering, requires all of those different aspects and more. It's helpful in the practice to reflect on the Eightfold Path, its components, remind ourselves of them all from samadhiti right through to samasamadhi. It's interesting that the Eightfold Noble Path has these different aspects, right view, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and the right concentration. And each part has to be perfected, completed, in order for this mind to be purified and cross over the ocean of Saṃsāra to Nibbāna to end suffering. We can't rely on just one factor or the other or like one factor but not like another. Develop one factor and not another. They all have to be developed together. And indeed they support each other. Sila supports Samadhi. Samadhi supports Panya. Panya supports Sila. So Ajahn Chah used to talk about them being three segments of a circle. You need all three segments to make a complete perfect circle. Or to bring the mind to perfect purification Realization. We want to experience the radiant mind that is purified and without suffering. We need all (coughs) the factors of the path working together. Present in the mind. And this is where they develop even though... The path is expressed in our speech, our action. It is the mind where these factors arise and are developed and where we train in the path. And if there is one factor that perhaps has more influence over the path than others, then it's probably wisdom, Panya. Hence the Buddha, talked about samadhiti as the first factor of the path, right view, because if we don't yet have right view then it's difficult to perfect the other factors of the path or to even appreciate them for what they are and the importance of them because our initial view, our initial understanding is not yet right. So we do need wisdom to begin practice and to support our practice. And so he compared wisdom to a lamp that shines just as we use a lamp to walk meditation at night so that we can see our walking path. The lamp of right view, illuminates the path for us. So it's gained through hearing the teachings, listening and reflecting, contemplating the teachings, learning them, internalizing them and reflecting on them. Obviously we have wisdom in life But wisdom that is used for worldly aims, supporting the kalesas, is wisdom that's back in wrong view. Mityaditi is not true wisdom. It might be just knowledge or being smart, but used to support the kalesas, so used to support greed or anger. So one can be very smart and intelligent and make a very powerful weapon say, to threaten or kill other people to get one's ends. But it's not yet right view. One has intelligence and wisdom, but wrong wisdom used for a a wrong end and just creates suffering as a result. The true wisdom, right view, is always directing one towards the end of suffering, helping one to see the path that leads to the end of suffering, helping one to develop the factors of the path that lead to the end of suffering. right view is essential for us to take the first steps towards practicing for the ending of suffering. Right view has many aspects to it. It's not just li- literally hearing the Dhamma and knowing a lot about the Dhamma reading a lot of books or the suttas and the Buddha tended to emphasize the first arising of right view or the beginning of right view is just appreciating the debt one has to those who have, who have helped us so the debt we have to our parents being aware of that Understanding that is right view. Not denying it, so putting one's parents down, or blotting them one's out, uh, blotting them out of one's mind, one's understanding, but actually appreciating that one cannot live in this world without parents. One couldn't be born or raised without parents. So one correctly views life, the Dhamma. One if one is correctly viewing life, then one is seeing the debt one has to parents. And then spiritual teachers and guides as well to so the Buddha that we couldn't practice without the Buddha. Certainly as bhikkhus we completely indebted to the Buddha for having developed this system of training in the Buddhist monastic form shaven head, robes, arms bowl this is what allows us to practice the goodness the incalculable unlimited goodness of the Buddha in practical terms is expressed in our robes and alms bowl which provide us with our livelihood and gives us this opportunity to practice. And then the very teachings that we hear guiding us in how to practice, whether on the most basic level or on the most refined level, we rely on teachers, the Buddha himself, his words, And then the living teachers, our tradition, the forest monastic tradition with many teachers uh, still alive, some have passed away, some are alive, but this living tradition we are also completely indebted to, to know what to do, how to practice correctly. This is an important factor in our right view. I remember when I first went to practice at Wat Map Jan when I just had a couple of reigns as a monk I went there for a temporary period and one time we were having a whole uh, a meeting of all the monks with Ajana nun, just discussing the practice and I can't remember who mentioned it but one monk mentioned that those monks who progress in the practice are those monks who have the quality of sammā karawāt. Karawā, it's this Pali word, very close to um, respect. In Thai, we have karawāt. Respect, uh, veneration perhaps is a good translation. One has right veneration. Right or correct respect, correct veneration for that which should be respected, that which should be venerated. So in terms of people, then that's enlightened teachers, wise teachers, the Buddha and the Salvakas since the time of the Buddha down to the present day. That which should be respected the goodness in our own hearts as well. The qualities of goodness that we have in order to have come this far in our spiritual path to be in a monastery practicing. However, far developed however well developed along our spiritual path we feel we are or however limited our spiritual development we feel about ourselves. Either way we have at least some qualities that are worthy of respect, veneration and others that need to be more fully developed. Or the people around us the community here or the lay community we can still see there is that which is worthy of respect, veneration the goodness in the hearts and minds of people around us we can recognize that and have respect, veneration for that even but it's an interesting uh, reflection that that monk made Because this term and this observation is not so common or manifest in Western society which has become very secular, materialistic. The idea of having respect or veneration for something is often quite alien to people, especially young people. They don't know what to respect, what it's correct to respect, and they don't know how to respect or venerate. But one for one seeking spiritual realization, end of suffering, development of the path, the Buddhist path, then it's an important component of samadhiti, right view. Samma Karawa, right, respect or correct respect, correct veneration for that which should be venerated and the monk who was making this comment was just saying that those bhikkhus with Samma Karawa tend to progress well and successfully in their practice because they respect teachers and They listen to teachers. They take in what they're told, the instructions they're given. They respect the form, the robes, the monastic form, the Vinaya. They respect the faith of the laity and so on. they have this appreciation of the goodness of the practice and they want to learn, they want to get on, they want to progress towards the end of suffering. So this is another part of samadhiti, just being able to respect that which is worthy of respect. If one isn't able to look up to uh, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha and all those who are worthy of respect and veneration and those qualities which are worthy of veneration even in our own heart. If one cannot do that, then difficult to progress because one mind, one's mind is not looking up to anything. Maybe it will, in other words, be looking more just to defilement, kilesa, looking to uh, the ego or sense of self, looking to different views which may not be quite correct or in line with Dhamma. But if one has samakarawa then one tends to be heading in the right direction because one listens to, gives importance to, follows up on uh, teachers and teachings, the right teachers, right teachings. It's a part of the component of sata, faith, that we also need to begin our practice. Faith, true faith is balanced by wisdom, so samadhiti and satha faith, are very close together, even though they're not the same quality. When one has samadhiti, then one has some faith, confidence in that which it's appropriate to have faith in, even belief. Often you hear modern Buddhists talk about the limitations of belief or how they don't want to just believe in something because they want to know rather than just believe, and that's correct. But at the same time, we do have to begin with just basic belief that what we're doing is going to lead to the happiness, the peace that we want. We have to believe in teachers, have to believe in the path of practice, in the way of practice and so on. Until we do know for ourselves, until we've reached that point where we have complete unshakable knowledge and envision in our own hearts, then of course there will be some belief, but it's an informed belief guided by wisdom and right view. So we use belief, Satha, confidence, sense of confidence, conviction in the teachings and the teachers, to help get us started, to give us some motivation, energy, to practice. And we use right view to balance it so that we're directing our mind to the right things, the correct areas of practice. Another aspect of right view is karma, the belief or the acceptance first of all of the law of karma as a basic starting point, a premise for our practice and then we take that to investigate until we actually see karma at work and know karma and understand karma for ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can see cause and result at work and we become skilled in Recognizing wholesome karma for what it is Kusala karma, punya, what we call merit, wholesome qualities of Dhamma, punya and kusala, wholesome karma, skillful karma, unwholesome karma, akusala karma, bhapa, that which we say is negative or evil.
1: This
0: is a skill that we're developing as we develop and train with Samaditi until we're absolutely clear in our mind what is wholesome karma and unwholesome karma for ourselves we know for ourselves through our own experience any mental state arising we know for sure this is wholesome this is unwholesome because that leads on to all the different factors of the path right action right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness. We use all these other factors to deal with the teaching of karma appropriately, to abandon unwholesome karma, karmic tendencies of body, speech and mind, to develop, to bring up wholesome karmic tendencies. In order to do this properly we have to have a right view to really see what is kusala and what is akusala and be willing to keep looking and investigating until we recognize clearly every moment of our lives, what is wholesome, what is unwholesome so that we can practice appropriately with each moment of mental arising and each moment of speech, each moment of action. Once this understanding of karma becomes established, then it naturally leads on to right, the development of right intention, samasankhapa, the nekama saṅkappa, the intention to abandon Sensual desire, attachment to the objects of the senses, the seeking of the pleasure of the senses, which is temporary and leading to delusion and leading to more attachment, leading to more suffering. Just getting that clarity around sensuality to know that it is a cause of suffering and it's not cause of any ultimate peace or happiness in this mind, in this life. Nekama Sankhapa, training in that, so turning away from Kamaraka, the opposite of Nekama is Kamaraka, karmadhanha, sensual desire. We're learning to recognize this on an ever more refined level, recognize sensual desire for what it is and its limitations to see where it causes us suffering. Unfulfilled desires are always stirring us up, gives us a sense of wanting, needing things to be happy, needing the objects of our senses, needing the pleasure that comes with them, but it's that needing, wanting that is so disturbing to the mind and causes us all kinds of problems, causes us to break precepts, causes us mental agitation, it's the opposite of a still content mind, causes us delusion, confusion, thinking that all our problems will be solved and suffering will be ended when we get the object of our desire and yet their very nature of sensual objects, the sensual realm, Gama Loka, Gama the, the realm of sensuality is that it cannot bring us any kind of lasting happiness sensual pleasure is always temporary however sophisticated or refined or enticing, it's always temporary and it actually conditions more desire. Even when you get what you want, it only makes you hungry for more. On and on and on. So if we have samadhiti established, then we start to develop sankapa turning away from the habit of mind that always seeks sensual pleasure and the habit of attaching to sensuality just habitual always, habitually attaching to sight, sound, taste, smell, touch to this body seeking it, hoping hoping that it will somehow bring us lasting happiness in the way we want or in the way our kalesas want. Reflecting on this, the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness and the lack of self in all of this and brings up kama. Experiencing uh, any state of one-pointedness, peace of mind from samadhi, is experiencing nekama sankapa, where the mind is satisfied in itself more content to be still peaceful turned away from the world not wanting anything feeling full in itself not empty or lacking So sama sankapa runs right through to sama-vayama-sama-sati-sama-samadhi. And these factors are all linked and support each other. avayapada sankapa, ahingsa Mm. sankapa, non-anger, non-cruelty, are the right intentions to be developed as we go through our lives, learning to recognize any kind of intention, mental state rooted in aversion, whether it's the most subtle irritation, dissatisfaction, unhappiness with conditions or experiences that we have, through to the most powerful emotional reactions of anger learning to recognize them all as mitya sankappa wrong intention wrong thought always bound to lead to suffering however justified our anger seems however correct it seems to as a reaction in the mind it's always wrong it's always mitya sankappa. Samasankapa is abandoning anger, developing metta, kindness, tolerance, acceptance Ahimsa Sankapa abandoning of any sort of seeking of revenge or cruelty towards others when one holds on to anger to the point when one wants to harm oneself or other people repeatedly looking on another person as an enemy or even oneself as an enemy wanting to harm take out one's anger on oneself or others obviously that would lead to Wrong action, wrong speech, wrong livelihood, and so on. Wrong effort, if one follows it through. Learning to recognize the intentions. If one finds living in a community that there's another person one doesn't get on well with, then one will start to see mitya, sankhapa come up in this way. When one views someone else maybe as an enemy someone one doesn't like and it will come out in one's speech one will make derogatory remarks unjust marks remarks, unkind remarks critical remarks either to their face or behind their back and based on this sense of wanting to get back at that person whether it's just one doesn't like their character or they've done something that didn't agree with one affected one in some way. Maybe we feel they've somehow blocked our happiness or annoying us so we can't get peaceful in our meditation or whatever it may be. We have to learn to recognize the karmic trait of wrong intention based around revenge, cruelty, getting back at, getting at others or sometimes ourselves. As we meditate we can maybe just get angry and upset with ourselves, get fed up with ourselves, want to blot out or somehow harm ourselves. Based on our wish for a peaceful mind we might get upset and angry with ourselves when we're not peaceful in our meditation. the right intention Samarasankapa is a whole practice in itself recognizing what is a wholesome intention what is an unwholesome intention for what they are in the end they're just phenomena they're just part of nature they are what they are they're dhammas. there's no real self in that there's no self in the wholesome thought or the unwholesome thought they are just what they are Nevertheless, we have to learn what they are and train ourselves to abandon the unwholesome because with its nature the nature of unwholesome intention is to agitate the mind. It doesn't make the mind peaceful, still, clear and happy. It agitates the mind, it disturbs the mind. So as we practice and become aware of that then we naturally want to drop any unwholesome mind state as a priority quickly, efficiently. We want to do it. Get rid of this unwholesome state because we know it's going to cause us suffering. So this takes us beyond the worldly way of wrong view where we're kind sort of backing up, justifying an unwholesome mental state, trying to find excuses to keep it, reasons why we should think in this way. It's correct to want to have happiness of the senses. It's correct to be angry over certain things. It's correct to hate somebody who's harmed me or caused me trouble. Even that's the worldly way justifies the kilesa. But the skilled practitioner, they're seeing it all as samasankapa or sankappa. The sankappa they just want to drop because they know it leads to suffering. They know it's like a thorn in their side. They know it's an impurity, a blemish in the mind. Cannot possibly perfect the path as long as there's mitya Sankapa present. So however important the justification for the wrong thinking is, the right effort to abandon the wrong thinking is more important, more, more of a priority. So it takes up more of our effort to actually drop the thought, the wrong thought, the thought that leads to suffering. Don't want it in the mind. Whatever the situation, whatever the case, doesn't matter. In the end, if one wants to perfect the the Buddhist path, the Eightfold Path, it has to be 100%. That's our goal, that's our aim. However difficult it may be, Our efforts have to be directed by our right view towards that end to drop the unskillful thinking. Again, if we really establish right view, then right thought, right intention will become more natural more habitual, more regular, more more frequently coming up in the mind. We just want to drop the unskillful thought because we know it causes suffering. We don't doubt that anymore. There's no more delusion there. Don't want it in the mind. Don't want the, the lust or the sensual desire in the mind. Don't want the anger in the mind. Especially if we've ever experienced a state of one-pointedness where the mind has finally settled down, become quiet, then there's no more doubt about what is wholesome and unwholesome. The unwholesome starts to become very, very obvious, very clear. and We can recognize it for what it is. A blemish, something that agitates us. And this is can be on a very basic level we just experience very extreme emotions that lead to speech and actions that cause us suffering we understand this point we want to train ourselves to abandon those emotional states that are feeding the uh, speech the action or it can be on a very subtle refined level just small movements of mind towards sensual objects or away from things we don't like in our mind just the aversion that comes up be very coarse, very refined, very high, very low, near, far in the end it's all non-self, not self, there's no self to be caught into desire. There's no self to be angry, no self to be peaceful. In the end, these are phenomena, parts of nature, they are just what they are that we're becoming to understand through our practice. Whether the mind is defiled or not defiled, peaceful or pure, or unpeaceful, impure, but there's no one there. There's no self in that. These are phenomena. These are the five kandhas that work. The nature of the candas is to arise and pass away. So form, feeling, memory, thought formations, sense consciousness. Another way of looking at sama sankapa, micha sankapa. You know, just the candas. When you can see a, a thought as just a sankhara canda, where well you can just drop it, there's no self that has that thought, or is that thought, or becomes that thought, it's just a thought, just a mood that comes up and goes away again. When we investigate like this you say, well, I don't like this because it makes me angry. You're looking to see, well, when you say, makes me angry, who is angry? Who is the me? What is the me? It's just body, feelings, memories, thoughts, consciousness, five candors. This makes me happy. This makes me feel good, sensual things. But who is the me in that? It just gives rise to pleasant feeling. Certain experiences give rise to pleasant feeling. Other experiences give rise to unpleasant feeling. It's just feeling arising, passing away. There's no me in that, me or mine. Myself, so as we start practicing, contemplating the Eightfold Path in this way, you can use it as a system of reflection on your daily behavior, mental behavior, physical behavior, body, speech, mind, what you're doing, to have a real look at truth. As the Buddha guided us, ask yourself, is this really you? Is there really a self in this? Because as we train in the developing the Eightfold Path, we become aware, more and more aware of these path factors, but at the same time there's no self that is experiencing all of this, that is treading this path. And these are just factors that are correct to develop. It's the correct thing to do, the wise thing to do, because it leads to a peace of mind. But there's no one doing this. There's no one walking the path, developing the path. It's just the correct thing to do. Over time we develop, bring up what should be brought up, develop that which should be developed, abandon that which should be abandoned but there's no one doing that, it's just the correct thing to do and this mind is being purified and brought to a sense of peace and radiance through that practice. But this mind, we say this mind but there's no one who owns this mind, it's just that which knows, the Buddha, the buddho state of awareness. All the time when we reflect on things we tend to see it from a point of view of self, don't we? We say, my practice, my mind, my samadhi, my wisdom, my understanding, myself, my anger, my greed, my delusion, my lack of anger, my lack of greed. But this sense of my, me, my, we just insert that through delusion. We just add it into the into the experience. As we keep practising though, that sense of self starts to diminish all automatically by developing these path factors. If all these path factors are arising strongly together supporting each other well that naturally that sense of self that grasps at everything naturally fades away. All that's left is just the mind with these path factors present. the Samadhi, Panya present. So oh, we can use these very simple, straightforward teachings that the Buddha gave us as uh, daily reflections, even moment-to-moment reflections, as reflecting on what is Samaditi, samasankapa, sama gamanta, sama Samavayama, sama achiva, sama wayama, sama sati, sama samati. They all have to be developed. They all have to be working together for the result. The samanyana Dasana, the right knowledge and vision. Samarvi the liberation, to come about. Often we can have a very narrow um, viewpoint of practice. You see, the practice is some technique, specific technique that we're going to do. Samatha, Vipassana, certain meditation objects or we have a view just want to understand Buddhism in in its entirety from an intellectual point of view, just read all the books get all the knowledge and so on often we have a limited view of the practice what you might call the real practice is sila, samadhi, panya it's all these eight path factors being developed together we can't neglect any part of it if we really want to experience the fruits that the Buddha was talking about we can't neglect the sila we can't neglect samadhi we can't neglect panya from samadhiti through to samasamadhi all the factors have to be developed Sometimes we kind of shy away from developing the path factors. It's understandable. Often we say we prefer, we like to seek out seclusion and be completely cut off from everybody because we find it a hassle, a problem to be with other people, how to talk wisely with people, how to deal wisely with people, how to interact with other people. So we often we like to shy away, be on our own, especially when things don't seem to go well. And that is part of our practice. It's an aspect we can use, it's a tool we can use. But at the same time if it's causing us to neglect developing part other parts of the practice, you know, we have to be careful not to be imbalanced. We have to develop right speech which isn't necessarily just no speech, not meeting anybody. We have to learn how to speak wisely with right intention. Samasankapa, backing the right speech. You know, vitaka, vichara, the you know, right intention is coming from where we put our mind, what we are attending to with our mind. And that comes out in our speech. Your right action. The choices of action we take. Not simply uh, avoiding killing, avoiding stealing, avoiding sexual misconduct, but also just right action and keeping the Vinaya in all its refinements is all right action. We can't avoid... That forever indefinitely by sort of staying in a cave or in a kuti. We also have to learn how to interact with the world wisely, to live wisely, to act in wise ways, behave wisely, speak wisely. Have to develop right effort in all situations, with when we're on our own, when we're with other people. When we're on our own, it's very easy to fall into bad habits because there's very little feedback. We can do more what we want, when we want, follow our desires more. So over a long period of time, if we're on our own, it's very easy to miss things, to not notice wrong views, wrong intentions, wrong speech, wrong wrong action that might be coming up. It's easy to drop parts of the Vinaya that we don't like. It's easy to become lazy, say, sleep in, or take our time not to practice much mindfulness. It's easy to become caught into distraction when we're on our own. When we're with other people, other kinds of problems arise. It's easy to get caught into aversion easy to get caught into another kind of distraction, the distraction of socializing, working with other people, interacting with other people to the point where we forget ourselves, we lose our mindfulness. So in the end it's not being on one's own or with other people, it's actually getting the principles of Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness and so on. Getting the principles established so that these eight factors of the path are arising whether we're on our own or with other people. It would have to be like that. There can't be some kind of special eightfold noble path just suitable for certain conditions when the conditions are right, when things are just right, the way we want, then the Eightfold Path arises and we become enlightened. But at other times, when it's not to our liking, then we can put the Eightfold Path to one side because it doesn't matter at those times, it doesn't count. It could never be like that. It has to be something that's 24-7, something that's... Once established, it's established all the time in all situations. So the Arahant who's perfected the path, they're an Arahant all the time, whether they're on their own with other people, because they have no more delusion, no more craving for the world and the things of the world, no more aversion for the world, no more delighting in, no more aversion to, no more delusion about, no more self. The Eightfold Path, the factors have been established to the point where the the result of the the purification of view and the liberation of mind has, has taken place. So we have to learn how to reflect on these eight factors and bring them up at all times in all situations. Some situations are more suitable and conducive, but even in the unconducive situations, we still have to bring them up. Whether we're strong and healthy or we're weak and ill, whether we're busy, whether we're quiet, whether there's people around or not, it's hot or cold, we're in the countryside, in the forest, we're in the city, We're still, we're traveling in all the different situations we face as bhikkhus. We have to develop the path factors in all of them. That's our job and that's the only way it could really work successfully. So
1: I'll leave these words with you for your reflection tonight.